Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Today's guest is Anu Pramidapati. Anu is a person who embodies growth-mindedness in a very special respect. She's a manager known for her fierce dedication to the growth of the people she manages. It's absolutely a treat to have you here, Anu. My pleasure to be here too, John. So I know that you grew up in, I think it's South India. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I was born in South India, but when I was just a few months baby, my parents actually moved to North India. So I spent a lot of time in my education in the North, and then we moved to West India. So my father was in a public sector undertaking job, so it was a transferable one, and we moved quite a few places growing up in India. And so did you have siblings? I have an elder brother. Oh, so not a very large family. I know some Indian families are very large. Yes, and it was a nuclear family too. So it was really a small family, just the four of us. I see. And uh, you're still close with your family? Are they still in India or do they come to the U.S.? Yeah, both ways. I I still visit India. You know, COVID was the probably the longest gap that I didn't see them, but very very close to the family. I visit them often and they come here too. And uh, so what part of uh, North India were you able to see the Himalayas? I was in Delhi uh, and then spent a few years in Calcutta. I still say Calcutta because that was the name then. Of course, it's now Kolkata. But seen a lot, quite a bit of North India. And it's interesting you mentioned Himalayas because the last trip that I visited my parents, we actually did that. We went on a Himalayan tour and saw the Himalayas, not back then, but very recently. Oh, nice. In uh, India or or Tibet or where? In In Nepal. Nepal. Nepal, Nepal. Nepal, I guess that's closest to India. Yeah. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, I've always wanted to do that myself. So uh, I'm (laughs) jealous. And uh, I imagine at at your young age, there wasn't that much technology yet in India. So how did you get interested in technology? Yeah, I was always very much interested in math. And because of my elder brother, already went down the path of doing computer science and technology and he shared a lot of his experiences and stuff with me so when i was waiting for my result of college admissions it was getting delayed and i actually joined a math honors college in delhi but my brother at that time had already done his studies in computer science and engineering And he shared his experience and motivated me not to miss this opportunity. And you were right. At that time, this was the dot-com era, right? Not much was happening in India. We didn't have even internet at that time in most of the locations. And I really got excited. And I ended up joining computer science and engineering in my college. I see. And so your brother, how much older is he than you? He's four years younger. Four years. Okay. So I guess you always held him in pretty high esteem. So his guidance was accepted by you. I know. And my siblings are too close in age. We had too much rivalry. We fought too, but yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Can't imagine a sibling but without a little bit of, of that. So, uh, but he paved the way, I guess, a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Did he, did he also come to the U.S.? I'm curious. Yes. He also had experiences in the U.S. Uh, he's currently in Canada. But yes, both of us are in the kind of same field. Yeah. Okay. And so did you go to college in, in India? What was your college experience like? 
So I did my bachelor's and my master's in India. I did computer science engineering in my bachelor's in South India. Uh, and then I did my master's uh, from IIT Bombay. I was not living with my family during during my education. They, uh, the, the major was information technology. I see. And then you, while you were in college, your family stayed in Calcutta? Yeah, they were in Delhi and at that time. Yeah. Oh, Delhi. Okay. Oh, I see. All right. And then... Did you go right to IBM from your master's? Yeah, I worked for a few months in between. But then, yes, uh, right to, this was IRL, I, IBM India Research Lab in Delhi. And that's where I joined in 2003. Oh, wow. And you were one of the first employees, if I yeah, uh, actually one of the first employees when IRL decided to uh, to set up another location in Bangalore. Oh, right, right. right. I was the first employee, I think, at that time. <laughs> oh, wow. So many uh, many listeners, and I, I myself, I've never been to India, and I've never been to the uh, India Research Labs. So paint us a little picture of what, it, what the lab is like. What is it physically like? What are the cities like? Uh, how does it differ from here? So, yes, India Research Lab started in Delhi. It's a beautiful location in, in the sense that it was inside IIT Delhi. So it was a location where you get interaction with most of the prominent you know, technology people. Uh, it's a premier institute. So we had a small building in, inside the IIT campus in Delhi. So IIT is one of the premier technology universities, maybe the highest ranked, right, in India? Correct. It stands okay, for yeah. Indian Institute of Technology. We have a few IITs spread over India, and IIT Delhi is one of those. Uh, Bombay being the other, and there are a few others too. But we started up in IIT Delhi campus, and it was very interesting to be back in the campus, although you're working. We have a corporate job, but back in the campus. In Bangalore, the lab was interesting, but of a different sort because it was in midst of the global delivery operations. So going from a campus, an academic setting, into the thick and thin of business where we are seated at the same floor as the service delivery operations were happening. So this was nice. at that time called Global Technology Services, the outsourcing business that IBM Oh, right. Had. And this was at the time when we started services research. Exactly. Right. And, and so you, in, in that new lab in Bangalore, you completely focused on services research, I bet. That's correct. And so it, it, it went back in um, Delhi, so this was a very academically oriented uh, lab. Is that true? So I think the lab, both labs have had certain amount of focus on applications. But I guess even at the IIT as an academic institution had a more applied bent than some uh, institutions in the United States. Is that right? Yeah. So though there was an application focus, like e-commerce was just growing. So we had a lot of focus on developing technologies for e-commerce. Autonomous computing was one of the buzzwords at that time. We worked quite a bit uh, on that in policy systems and developing policy engines, working with Tivoli. Uh, so there was a good mix, I think, a balance between academically oriented topics uh, as well as applications in terms of what was growing in developing countries at that time. Right. I know you also, you played a pretty prominent role in uh, autonomic computing from the India end. And I remember you uh, wrote an ODBC driver. I'm not sure how connected that is to uh, <laughs> autonomic computing. And then, then once you moved to Bangalore, you also were very involved in uh, the founding of the initial foray into services science. 
Yeah, that was very interesting. An exposure to firsthand business operations, being able to interview uh, the field operations and trying to identify gaps and building technology grounds up that uh, was the most suitable in solving their problems. I think that was uh, quite a quite a bit of enriching experience for all of us at that time. And so, what what was that early career highlight for you? I think when the services research started, that was a big highlight, just as I described, being able to get exposed uh, to the operations at that level of depth, uh, surrounding ourselves with delivery managers, operations, consultants. And at that time, because the services business in general at IBM was also growing, there was a lot of inflow of customers visiting the center. So we also had exposure, enough exposure, I should say, in talking, talking directly with customers. And you like, I guess you get energy out of talking to clients, it sounds like. Yes, certainly. I think. And still? Still? Still, yes. Okay, because many researchers uh, don't love that part of the job. Uh, and some people and researchers ended up because of that not uh, taking positions where they're not exposed to clients. But I guess that's not, that's part of your job you like. Good, great. When did you actually first start in management? I became a manager in two thousand eight, uh, and that was like five years into my job at IRL. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was we are still working in services research at that time. I see. So when did, what year did you start in service? That was right around the time you started in services research, right? Yeah, a couple, maybe a year or so ago, yeah. Later. Okay. So first, let me ask you about the founding of the Bangalore lab. You're one of the first employee. So you actually built the lab a little bit, I imagine. You know, it was a different experience altogether. I mean, this was, in a, some of you may know, Guru Banaur. Uh, he came down to Bangalore to establish the lab. Uh, and there were times when there were two of us uh, sitting in a small corner of this floor trying to decide what next to do. You didn't have to build out the space. So the space <laughs> and the architecture of the building that was already there, you didn't have to. No, we later moved into a specific space that was designed for the research facility. Uh, this space that we were in where we started was just a loner. It was just a few desks that were given to us. I think there were like 12, 15 desks in one corner that were given to us. Uh, and that was that was it. Uh, yeah. oh, but was it exciting to see the growth of the place and hire people and all that? Oh, it was it was amazing. I mm -hmm. think at that time, because the lab was small, everybody knew everybody else. You know, we used to have parties with families always because oh, the wow. strength was so low. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, so we used to do, uh, there's a famous activity in Bangalore called Bangalore Walks, uh, which is walk around the historic places in Bangalore. We used to do that with families. Every festival oh, nice. was, there was a get together for every festival, again, along with families. So we all oh, knew nice. each other, spouses, kids, even parents. Oh, wow, that's so wonderful. And so it was your, had your family moved down yet to, down to the South? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, they had, oh great. Um, yeah, with an experience because I've worked in IBM since then. Uh, you know, I, I shared with IBM uh, the joy of uh, getting married. So it was my parents who attended. You know, these uh, these group get-togethers. Oh. My husband. So you got did. married at the wait. You got married at the same time, right around the same time. Yes. Yes. Oh wow! So my oh, husband my. got to attend a few get-togethers, and then my kids. So mm -hmm. you know. IBM has been kind part of your of, family. It's part of your exactly. family, IBM. Oh, wow. <laughs> been a strong fridge. Uh, yeah. It's been a yeah, strong I actually fridge. love when that happens. I, I've 
experience, sometimes couples for, that are both IBMers or pe people who actually manage to make IBM a big part of their life can be very rewarding. <laughs> so I guess it was for you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay so right at, not too much after that, you had an opportunity to be a GTO co-lead. I should explain that that's our global technology outlook. And in fact, that may be better, um, Anu, for you to explain to everyone what the GTO is. Sure. So IBM GTO, which stands for Global Technology Outlook, is an annual exercise uh, that is done, uh, spearheaded by research, but in conjunction with all the other business units and leadership across the company to, to identify directions that IBM should invest in from a technology perspective in the coming future. So some of these insights are applicable, uh, have a, a horizon of three to five years down the line, and some of them are more near term, but it is an exercise that gathers input feedback from pretty much every technical entity inside IBM and presents this report to the CEO and their immediate leadership team. And then there are decisions that are done in order to now realize that roadmap in terms of projects getting started, even business units that have gotten created. Uh, and it was interesting that when we did the GTO, there were two new business units that got created out of the report that we presented at that time. To uh, which, which were they? So one was blockchain uh, and the other one Watson Health. Oh, wow. Big, so it was a very influential GTO. And I should mention, I should just interject that it's a big honor to be named as a uh, GTO co-lead. Uh, also, mm -hmm. an opportunity for international experience. So yeah. what was it like being the, being the co-lead? Oh, it was an amazing experience, I think. So yearly, there are two co-leads selected from the worldwide labs, and they are in Yorktown Heights, which is the research lab headquarters in IBM working with the senior leadership uh, and all the other teams that I just mentioned in preparing this global technology report. Uh, it's a pretty hectic exercise where you have to lead a rod, understand the trends, understand where the market pull is, understand differentiation, being able to do market research and to the extent that we can make a business case as realistic as possible, we were involved in that too. Okay, there's an aspect of this that I really want to hone in on, and that is that you're taking people with very strong opinions about what the future will look like, and you have to get them to work together. And you, you're not imposing your own views at all, right? You're just right. trying to get a coherent picture to emerge from these, the viewpoints of these very passionate researchers. It must be very difficult. Almost it's, yeah. it's a good practice for management. <laughs> I would completely agree. I think it's not easy because people who have been here or who have very strong experience in their fields uh, are very passionate about the directions they are pursuing and they want to see. Uh, and there are opposing points of view. And you have to tread that path carefully because you want consensus at the end and you want uh, uh, all parties to come together because that's then the, the biggest strength of execution. So how did, did the GTO experience affect your um, perspective on management in any way? Uh, <clears throat> yes, as we talked about skills that you learned about just working with people and being exposed to situations that you have not experienced before, uh, uncertainty, conflicts, and you know, getting consensus. I think we were exposed to, to all of this to develop new skills, which was amazing. 
I did not immediately take a management role after my GTO. I really saw that you could build a strong technical career no, being sorry, an management, contributor. Yeah. Yeah. And so I took up an individual contributor role for some time before I was again offered a management position, which I then ended up taking. And so how did you actually become so interested in the growth of your employees and really your passion for helping people grow individually? Do you have any idea? Or is that just yeah, innate in you? <laughs> uh, I think I gravitate towards people where they are, they are technically strong, they have the skills and the capabilities, but also more when they have people skills. Mm -hmm. So in hiring or in working with people, I'm not necessarily looking for highly talented, but looking for a good mix of talented plus people skills. Oh, very interesting. I think that that's, that's often overlooked. I think that most people, when they're interviewing, they're looking for, oh, I need this exact technical skills. I need somebody, you know, who can create, uh, oh, this particular type of AI model or who knows what the heck it is. They overlook completely or don't even focus at all on people skills. So perhaps people with good people skills are more amenable to growth and learning and, yeah, oh, interesting. I, I feel it that way. Uh, and when you said, is it something that is innate? So I, if I look back on, I have always been more motivated to work with such people, hire such people. It's uh, So I felt that there was something that uh, I understand about people and hence probably the passion about working with people. You're a very personable person. So uh, I guess it's natural for you to focus on that, on the social side of people. Okay, so I have a couple of specific growth-minded questions that I, um, I always ask somebody at least one, but I have three, two questions. They're closely related. Okay, so the first one is, was there a time in your mentorship or management of someone where in retrospect, you realized that you kind of messed up, either in terms of the relationship or the direction you were giving them? And if, if, if there was such a time, can you describe any lessons you learned from the experience? Yeah, I remember a situation like that. This person was in my team, highly experienced, competent, hardworking, we were a big team working on delivering a client project. So this person was taking initiative, helping set the direction, but also had strong opinions about the skills that others bring to the table, especially on whether those skills were valuable or not valuable for the team. And this hurt the team morale because they felt that they were not equal participants or their skills were not as recognized or they're not adding as much value as they perceived. I think in retrospect, uh, I messed up in my response to dealing with that situation. My response to the situation at that time was, let me own the team meetings and I would ensure that such conversations and discussions don't surface up and we are really focused on what we need to do as a team and deliver the project. Everybody so, has- so, so, so let me interrupt. You, you just, you recognized the fact that this person was harming some of the other employees on, in the team. And so you took ownership of the meeting so that you could minimize that effect during the meeting. Is that right? Correct. So okay. I thought me, me having control and ownership of the meeting and driving the agenda and sticking to what needs to be done for the project delivery uh, and not getting into subjective opinions and stuff would kind of put everybody at ease. There would be equal participation, equal recognition, 
for the entire team. And I think that worked fine. Uh, we ended up successfully delivering the project. The client was happy and everybody moved on to the next projects. But in retrospect, if I think about the situation now, I felt I should have dealt with it more directly. Mm-hmm. I missed an opportunity to coach that person and making that person aware of how you know their comments or their opinions were hurting other team members and bringing their morale down. I was assuming that such a senior person and an experienced person would implicitly understand, you know, by my way of organizing the meetings and not entertaining any of their discussions at all would give them a hint and they would know. But I think I really yeah. missed an opportunity of direct coaching. And I, oh, I, and I take it in. I see actually that I would make the same mistake, quite honestly, <laughs> that I have a hard time delivering a difficult message directly to people. And uh, I can see that, especially being uh, somewhat emotionally connected, or I try to be like you. And uh, so, yeah, when I when I deliver negative or you know difficult to receive feedback, I have to find three or four things positive to say, or I figure the person's never going to listen to me. And right. in such circumstances, it's hard. You sort of beat around the bush a little bit, and the, yeah. maybe the same happened with you. Yeah, I also feel I missed an opportunity to learn from that experience. Had I had that conversation. Uh, maybe I would have learned something about how to maybe handle it better next time. Good. Well, great, great, great example. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Anu, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Yeah, enjoyed totally. Thank you for inviting me here. And hopefully yes. <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it will be very interesting to everyone. So that wraps up this episode of I'm Not Knowing. The show is produced by Andy Aaron with technical assistance from Heloisa Candelo and Cindy Seal. I'm John Lenchner, and thanks for listening.